0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at what Governor Tony Evers' budget proposal could mean for Wisconsin students and schools. Then we'll look at the Wisconsin DNR's proposed wolf management plan and hear two differing opinions on it.
1: We conclude that the 2022 estimated state wolf population is vastly overestimating the number of wolves in the
0: state. Plus we'll explore three books to read for Black History
2: Month.
3: There are so many books. Uh, if, the, if the listeners <laughs> could, could see my office, they, could, they would see the shell, all the books on, on, on my bookshelf.
0: All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Governor Tony Evers has released his first state budget proposal since he was reelected last November. The governor wants the state to use some of its $7 billion surplus to increase school funding by a record $2.6 billion over the next two years. Evers is Wisconsin's former state superintendent. He's proposed major education spending in past budgets, but most of it has been dead on arrival with Republicans who control the legislature. WUWM education reporter Emily Files joins me to share some of the highlights in Evers' education spending proposal. Hi, Emily. Hi, Joy. Thanks for having me. So what are the biggest priorities in Evers' K-12 education budget?
4: Well, when Evers unveiled his budget proposal, he focused on student mental health. He pointed to new data from the CDC, which shows the highest rate of depression ever seen among Wisconsin high schoolers, especially among girls and lesbian, gay and bisexual students. Anxiety and suicidal thoughts have also increased among teens. Here's Evers responding to that grim picture of student mental health in his budget address.
1: No one who has the privilege of working in this building, including I, can read these statistics and say with a straight face that we're already doing enough. Folks, enough will be enough when these are not the statistics reading about our kids in the news. It's time to
5: get serious.
4: Evers wants to spend $118 million to reimburse schools for mental health services and about $40 million for mental health professionals like social workers and psychologists in schools. So that's a priority that Evers is really highlighting, but that's not the biggest line
0: item in his education budget. All right. So looking at the budget, where would most of that $2.6 billion go?
4: So most of it would go toward freeing up money for schools to spend on general expenses. Evers wants to increase general aid by $1 billion, giving schools an extra $1,000 per student to spend over the next two years. And another $1 billion would go toward special education. The underfunding of special education is an ongoing issue in Wisconsin. You know, schools are federally mandated to provide services for kids with disabilities, but those costs have ballooned and state funding has not. Right now, the state only covers about
0: 30 percent of special ed costs. So there's a lot more that needs to be covered. How would schools cover the rest of those funds?
4: So they have to pull funding from their general education budget, meaning there's less money for all students, for general education students, uh, less money to pay for teachers, support staff, extracurriculars, textbooks. So Evers wants to double the state's special education reimbursement rate to 60 percent, from 30 percent to 60 percent, which would free up a lot of money for schools. This special education funding increase is one of the biggest things public education advocates have been fighting for. It really unites urban, suburban, and rural districts.
0: Sure. I'm guessing uh, one of the few things. Uh, That means we're looking at $1 billion for special education and then an additional $1 billion for general education. Yeah, $1 billion in general aid, which schools have
4: a lot of discretion over how they use. The important thing with general aid is that it doesn't automatically give schools more money to spend because school spending is restricted by revenue limits, which are meant to keep property taxes in check. So in each budget, the governor and legislature can decide to raise the revenue limit by a certain amount or to keep it flat. In the last budget, Republicans kept the revenue limit flat, and so the general aid that they put into schools actually lowered property taxes rather than giving schools more money to spend. Um, and that flat revenue limit was hard for schools to deal with over the past couple of years because of inflation. You know, costs have been rising. Uh, so Evers wants to raise the revenue limit over the next two years by $1,000 per student. Sure.
0: Why did Republicans choose not to raise the revenue limit last budget?
4: Yeah, this was a big deal. You might think that with COVID and everything students have been through that, They would give schools more money to spend per student um, in this kind of broad way. But Republicans pointed to the billions of dollars in federal funding that schools were getting from the three COVID relief bills. It is a lot of money, uh, a lot of federal money coming to schools, especially for high poverty districts like MPS. But as these school leaders will repeatedly emphasize, It's one-time money. So a lot of schools over the past two years have been forced to either use that one-time money for ongoing costs or to make cuts, like closing schools.
0: And that money is temporary. When do these federal funds run out? It runs out in September 2024.
4: So a lot of schools right now are doing all these construction projects. They're buying textbooks and professional development for staff. Maybe they're hiring temporary literacy or math coaches or staff that it's not clear if they're supposed to be temporary or not. So the deadline to spend the money is in a year and a half. And if the state doesn't increase its support for schools, they're facing a pretty painful fiscal
0: cliff. Mm. Now, we've talked about $2 billion out of Evers' $2.6 billion education budget. Uh, What about the other more than half a billion dollars. So some of it
4: is going to the mental health initiatives um, and a couple other noteworthy pieces in there uh, include $120 million to make school meals free for all students. $75 million for English learner students, and about $15 million aimed at strengthening the teacher workforce and making it easier for uh, teachers to work in Wisconsin schools and for Wisconsin
0: schools to hire teachers. Now, this budget really depends on buy-in from the legislature, uh, which is controlled by Republicans. What have Republican lawmakers said so far about Evers' education proposal? In the press conference where Republicans responded to Evers' budget
4: address, Representative Jesse Rodriguez of Oak Creek called out a piece of Evers' proposal that would freeze enrollment in school choice programs.
0: Governor Evers' plan freezes enrollment in school choice, which is a critical part of our state's education system that ensures families have the educational options that fit their children's needs. Over 49,000 students in our, in our state utilize one of the school choice programs. Eliminating this option by freezing enrollment, like Governor Evers has proposed, will not be in our budget. Instead, our budget will prioritize parental involvement,
6: providing educational options, and improving student achievement.
4: The school choice programs use taxpayer money as private school tuition. And Evers has long been opposed to these programs, and he's proposed freezing enrollment before, and he's trying to do that again in this budget. But it's definitely a non-starter with Republicans. And Republicans note that they've made investments in mental health, literacy, and special education in past budgets. So maybe there are areas that they're up for investing in again this time, but they're not likely to want to spend as much as Evers wants. They've
0: They've expressed how much
4: they disagree with the increase that Evers wants in this budget.
0: Well, and there's some historical uh, precedents here. Remind us what's happened in the last two biennial budgets since Evers has been governor.
4: So the Republicans who lead the Budget Writing Committee have thrown out the vast majority of Evers' proposals. In 2019, Evers wanted a $1.4 billion education increase. Republicans went with $500 million. In 2021, Evers proposed a $1.6 billion increase, and Republicans increased the spendable money for schools by just $128 million. So again, Republicans in in that 2021 budget, they argued that schools didn't need more state money beyond what they provided because they got all this federal one-time federal money. Um, and schools, of course, argued, well, that federal money is supposed to be for additional things for students, not for ongoing costs. But the 128 approximately million uh, in new spendable money is is what ended up passing in that budget. So Evers could refuse to sign a Republican budget that he thinks doesn't do enough for students. But that kind of standoff between Evers and lawmakers hasn't happened with the past two budgets. So um, it remains to be seen whether he'll make a stand like that.
0: Sure. But a major disparity between, uh, it seems, what Evers has wanted both now and historically and what uh, the Republicans leading the legislature have wanted. But the real question here is, what do Wisconsinites want to see happen with this funding? So looking at a Marquette poll from last October,
4: there's a pretty even divide over whether to reduce property taxes or increase spending on public schools. That was the question. It was, would you rather lower property taxes or increase how much the state spends on public schools? Um, But with a $7 billion surplus, lawmakers might feel like they can do both of those things. And the Marquette poll also asked voters about private versus public school support. And about 60 percent of Wisconsinites would rather increase public school funding than private school funding.
0: All right. Well, Emily Files is WUWM's education reporter. She has joined us to talk about Governor Evers' biennial budget proposal. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
6: From Milwaukee's NPR this is capital notes we break down the big political news affecting wisconsin i'm Ayana silver speaking with J.R. ross editor of wispolitics.com he provides a roundup of the wisconsin developments you need to know here's our latest conversation hi jr nice to talk to you oh same here so it's been about a week since the state supreme court primary election Conservative former Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly pushed through along with Liberal Judge Janet Protosewitz. There were more than 950,000 votes cast, and that basically broke records and expectations. What does this tell you about this race?
5: Well, one, it's the money that's going into this race, and two, the excitement. I mean, to put in perspective, the number of people turned out in the primary, the primary in February of 2023 was more than voted in the 2015 April election for the Supreme Court to decide who won the race. Um, and the money has been just amazing. I went through and calculated about $9.2 million spent through the primary. To put that in perspective, the record for spending a Supreme Court race for the entire campaign in Wisconsin is $9.8 million. We are al- we've already shattered that day since the primary. We are going to more than likely top the national record of $15 million spent for a single Supreme Court campaign. And the question is, how high is it going to go? And that money is going to help drive turnout. It gets people excited. They see the ads. They're getting the phone calls to try and get them to turn out and vote. I mean, it's all interrelated in terms of what's going on with this election.
6: What are you looking for, already seeing from the candidates to capitalize on this?
5: It's going to be a six-week sprint. We're actually less than six weeks out. So the question is, who's going to spend the most and how is it going to be the most effectively used? you know, looking at this race already, we're seeing themes about abortion. Uh, That's going to be a heavy theme on the liberal side. The conservative side is trying to disqualify, but to say, which is soft on crime, really going after on that, trying to drive a message that she'll put her thumb on the scale of justice and, you know, not be a fair and impartial uh, jurist, but somebody who is going to try to rule a certain way politically because of her personal beliefs. You know, we'll see if that works, but It looks like right now conservatives have some work to do to catch up financially what liberals are putting up in this race.
6: Well, you know, it seems to be Kelly's platform. You mentioned being soft on crime, but also that Protosawicz will, you know, supposedly legislate from the bench and that it's a danger to the rule of law to elect her. While on the other hand, she's trying to, like you said, explicitly mobilize voters around abortion, around redistricting. Do you think one approach has a better tendency or chance of rallying the prospective bases?
5: You know, years ago, judges kind of shy did, didn't want that kind of like label of, oh, uh, they're going to uh, rule a certain way or they really try to go their way to avoid uh, that knock. But, you know, I, I had a conversation with a, a Democratic source last week who said, look, post Dobbs, which overturned Roe v. Wade, voters on the Democratic side want a result. They, they want to know if the, I vote this way, I'm going to get X result. I don't want to light step around what I'm looking for. They want a justice who's going to vote to overturn that ban on abortion. It's going to motivate certain people who feel that way. The question is, will it turn off voters or will it motivate conservatives to an equal extent who don't want to see a jurist like that? That's a big question in this race, but there is no doubt that abortion is going to be a huge issue. I know conservatives are already kind of like chafing at the amount of attention put on it, but when it's such a heavy focus in the ad, you can't ignore that issue in this race.
6: Well, it's kind of an illusion to think that we haven't known what current or other justices or former justices have thought about things. In fact, even in this race, Justice Kelly, former Justice Kelly was paid more than one hundred and twenty thousand dollars from the state GOP to advise about election integrity and the slate of presidential electors. That was fake. Um, So voters can still know about a candidate's politics, even though the most they'll say is that they'll follow the Constitution. (laughs)
5: Oh yeah, I mean, we used to be a little bit, a little bit more discreet about trying to like play these niceties, these kind of like you know, try not to be explicitly partisan. But that's that's not happening. I mean, honestly, the Republican Party of Wisconsin was ahead of the Democratic Party and get involved in Supreme Court campaigns years ago. They started putting money to races and really got involved. The Democratic Party was somewhat hesitant for a while of getting involved, sometimes because the candidates didn't want them to. But that has totally changed. The Democratic Party has fully embraced it's uh options in supreme court campaigns. Uh, again, they're putting put big money in a in their ground game to help her win. It is going to be a partisan race banked to go two ways about it this spring.
6: Has there been any precedent for protestewich's outspokenness on issues like in Wisconsin or around the country?
5: That's a good question, uh, you know, and you know when she talks about these issues, she says I'm showing you my values, but I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to rule. I don't know if people necessarily believe that she's not signaling at least a good idea of how she's going to rule. But then you have liberals who say, well, look, you know, Dan Kelly has got a a history with anti-abortion groups. How is he really going to say he's going to just, you know, apply the law as is and not vote a certain way on abortion? You know, we'll see. It's just an interesting, it's, it's, the evolution continues these Supreme Court campaigns. When I first started doing this job a long time ago, all we talked about was, you know, my judicial philosophy and who's endorsed me. Now we're getting more explicit about, you know, positions and issues and really kind of honing in on those kinds of things.
6: And, of course, there are two candidates who didn't make it through to the general election. That's Judge Jennifer Doro and Judge Everett Mitchell of Madison. From what you know, do you think their supporters will get, you know, basically get behind the victorious candidates?
5: Uh, You know, Mitchell only got about 7.5%. It's going to be interesting to watch what his supporters do. Um, I know there was some kind of uh, just a little bit of happiness in, among some black voters and, and activists about how this campaign played out and the attention paid or not paid to Everett Mitchell. Plus, too, you know, there's also a, a social justice wing in the Democratic Party that isn't really happy about seeing, you know, tough on crime ads, feeling like those kinds of things aren't really good for their ultimate aims about a fairer justice system in their minds. So we'll see if there's some chafing there. but. The bigger question is over on the conservative side because there's a much bigger split in the conservative vote. If you look at the turnout uh, from Tuesday and pockets of where things went well for conservatives, I mean, Waukesha County was a good county for conservatives. They got kind of like the number they need in a general election between the the share of the vote for Kelly and Doro combined versus what Portosewitch and Mitchell pulled. The question though is, you know, Doro is homegrown talent for Waukesha County, a judge in that county really got a lot of attention because of the Waukesha Christmas Parade trial, do those Doro voters, do they gravitate toward Kelly? Um, abortion is going to be a big issue, whether conservatives want it to or not, that's going to come up. Is Kelly going to have a good answer on the abortion? Can he talk about that issue in a way that pulls back into the conservative side those kind of suburban, professional women who have been driven away from Republican politics by Donald Trump and the abortion issue? It's going to be a huge, a huge task for him.
6: And on that note, about thinking about suburban Republican women and, uh, you know, another big election in southeastern Wisconsin is the 8th Senate District. There was a special election last Tuesday. Representative Dan Knodel of Germantown is moving forward to face Democratic candidate Jody Sinekin. Democrats were trying to flip that primary towards Janelle Branchin. What does Knodel's win tell you about that district and that race going forward?
5: Well, one, is not as Trumpy as some Republicans were th- or- Worried it might be. I mean, Janelle Branson got endorsed by Trump the days ahead of the election. Um, she's well-known for her Trump connections, and she only got a little more than a fourth of the vote. That's not great uh, when you're a sitting lawmaker in that district. who's I mean, your, your district makes up a third of the seat, right? So that's not great. Um, but two, there was a lot of establishment Republican money trying to help Canodal. Uh, from what I counted up, more than a quarter million dollars, either pro-Canodal spending or anti-Branchin spending, we had one group, uh, the Republican State Leadership Committee, uh, that was doing ads that were behind Kenodal. Uh, Senator Leader Devin who happens to be on the executive committee of that group, so it kind of gives you an idea where the establishment was in this primary. Also, there was a, a couple groups tied to Adam Kinzinger, who's a Republican former congressman from Illinois, big Trump critic. Uh, those groups did some anti-branch and stuff. Kind of tells you the establishment was not was hoping she would not get through. And the question that raises. It is not a swing seat. This is like a 55% Republican seat. Is it going to perform like it normally would come April, or is the Supreme Court race going to drown out that campaign? Is it, is it going to be about abortion in that race? I mean, it's a suburban Milwaukee seat. This is a place where Tim Michaels got 51.5% of the vote in November when he was kind of hit a lot on his abortion stance. If that becomes a big issue in that race and Democrats are going to try to make it one, maybe it creates an opportunity to win that seat. But even talking to Democrats are like, look, this is not, you know, the best terrain for us. It's going to be tough. There's a chance. It's just not a very wide path to winning that seat in April.
6: All right. Well, thanks for the analysis, JR. And thank you for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. That was JR Ross of wispolitics.com speaking with me, WUWM's Mayan Silver. Listen for our segments every Monday with an extended segment on Lake Effect and check out the Capital Notes podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 20 minutes, we'll get a few book recommendations on some essential Black History Month reading. But first, the Wisconsin DNR is proposing an update to the state's wolf management plan. We'll hear two differing opinions on the plan from wildlife management experts. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. The Johnson Department of Natural Resources is in the process of updating the state's wolf management plan. The original plan dates back to 1999. At that time, the wolf population was slowly rebounding after its complete destruction decades earlier. The DNR estimates the wolf population last year was 972 wolves. One element of the proposed management plan is to eliminate the 1999 goal of sustaining a maximum of 350 wolves. WUWM's Susan Ben spoke with two people with differing opinions on the proposed plan. We'll hear first from Adrian Weidevin, who thinks most of the DNR's plan is on track.
7: There's a lot of groups that, that want the department to cap the wolf population at that level, which would mean eliminating wolves from two-thirds of the wolf range in Wisconsin. Because uh, we've got close to a thousand wolves right now, so it's no longer a realistic goal. It was based on understanding of what the, what the carrying capacity was in the 1990s and our understanding of population viability of the Wisconsin wolf population in the 1990s. So, it's no longer applicable. And that the department was, is willing to go without a numeric goal, I think, is is really really one of the best things about this plan. Uh, they're going to be using other metrics for determining whether a particular zone wolf population should be maintained, reduced, or allowed to increase and, and focus especially on uh, ecological benefits, uh, ecological uh, functioning of, of, of the wolf population. So the kind of things that that many of us were pushing for that uh, focus more on the ecological benefits of wolves instead of uh, just trying to go towards some arbitrary number that uh, is no longer reasonable.
2: I believe a cornerstone of your time in helping to restore the wolves on the landscape would be the winter tracking. Will that remain a key piece or is that a key piece?
7: It is. It is. The department still relies extensively on volunteers as well as agency folks to track and determine wolves on the landscape, uh, but unlike the system we had previously, the what we refer to as minimum counts, uh, territorial mapping, we were trying to determine every individual pack in the state and exactly how many animals were in each pack. The more important part is just to determine where wolves are occurring on the landscape and where packs are occurring on the landscape, and then based on other metrics, determine the average pack size, the average number of wolves per pack, and then come up with an estimate of the population using that system. It, it gives you a number that averages 14, 15 percent higher than what we were getting on the minimum counting system, but it probably comes close to estimating the actual number of wolves that are on the landscape at that time.
2: Then to what you would like to see either changed or added to the plan?
7: Sure. We uh, like the zone system, the way it's planned in that there's six zones and, and zones one, two, and five represents core wolf areas. But the boundaries of a area in western Lincoln County that was one of the first places wolves colonized in Wisconsin and all of our GIS analysis has shown it to be good wolf habitat and there have not been any livestock depredations in the area in recent years. It was listed as kind of transitional wolf range and we would like to see that return to the primary wolf range. So that would be one of the areas where we'd like to see some changes. Uh, another one would be the plan talks about Issuing not too many permits so that the hunting season can be extended over long periods of time and trapping season over longer periods of time so that it can be a more satisfactory hunting opportunity and trapping opportunity for the participants. We have some concerns about issuing too few permits and extending the season over too long a period of time. It starts the first Saturday of November. And in 2012, 2013, and 2014, when wolf hunting and trapping seasons were done, they ended by earlier, mid-December. Uh, all of the zones were closed by then. So no hunting occurred in January February. With the 2021 hunt, all of the hunting occurred in February in the middle of the wolf breeding season. So we would like to go back to this system that occurred in those earlier years where the season ended early enough because as you get later into the season there's risk that any kind of hunting trapping activity is going to be disruptive to the snow track surveys we talked about earlier that being able to conduct those is going to be more difficult if people are are hunting and uh, and trapping on the landscape Uh, plus the the regulations allows the use of dogs for hunting wolves after the firearm deer season or the first monday after thanksgiving and the later the season extends into December, that means areas would be more areas would be exposed to use of dogs, and we know that that can be have a, very quickly overharvest wolf populations, and is likely to be disruptive to uh, wolf behavioral activity, territorial uh, uh, marking, territorial uh, defense, as well as if it extends into late January, February, is a risk that it also would be detrimental to wolf breeding activities. Along similar lines, the department's recommendation would be that people could start training their dogs that Monday after Thanksgiving, and as long as any zone in the state was open to wolf hunting and trapping, they could continue to train their dogs statewide. We have a lot of concerns about that.
2: So just so I understand that, Adrian's according to the proposal as it stands, as long as the season is going on even if one zone or more of the wolf zones have been closed, training could go on anywhere in the state?
7: Yes, people might have read over that, not even caught that. But uh, yeah, that hit me as a, a big issue of concern.
2: There were just a couple of points under additional recommendations, which included occupancy modeling. What is that about?
7: So that's that's a system I had talked about earlier that the DNR is using for surveying the wolf population and uh, unfortunately the department's getting a lot of criticism from from both sides from some groups that are very protective of wolves and from some uh, and and many of the hunters and and, and trappers who feel that it uh, they don't feel it's counting enough wolves and while we support the occupancy modeling, we think the department needs to do a better job educating people about it. And I think there's a, a lot of misunderstandings about occupancy modeling and how it's being used, and what what the information are gathering from it. And we think it's a good system, but I think currently uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding and and distrust of the of occupancy modeling. And the department has to really gear up as far as educating people more about how occupancy modeling works and bring it down to a level that the average person can understand. Because unlike the system we had previously where we're basically just counting wolves, it gets into much more complex statistics. So that can be challenging as far as uh, in in educating people about things. But I think it's it's still important for the department to really try to do more of a job of letting people know exactly how the system works.
2: You're listening to Lake Effect on WUWM. I'm environmental reporter Susan Bentz. You just heard from Adrian Weideven on the DNR's proposed wolf management plan and now UW-Madison Nelson Institute Professor of Environmental Studies, Adrian Travis will share his perspective. He doesn't share Weidevin's confidence in the Wisconsin DNR's proposed plan. Travis, who has spent more than two decades studying wolf management and wolf science, says his concern, in part, is that the DNR is underestimating the impact of Wisconsin's most recent wolf hunt. The harvest took place in February of 2021 and exceeded the quota by 83%. Travis recently submitted a paper for peer review that lays out his argument that the DNR's proposed occupancy model formula will not result in sound wolf management.
1: So, in collaboration with Dr. Francisco Santiago Avila, a former postdoc in my lab, we as independent scientists decided to evaluate the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources estimate of the state wolf population based on this new scaled occupancy model to estimate the statewide wolf abundance in 2022. Dr. Santiago Avila and I scrutinized it by comparison with the published peer-reviewed literature on how wolf abundance is estimated around the world, and we scrutinized step-by-step how the procedures compare to past Methods used by the WDNR to estimate wolf abundance in our state, and every single step indicated this overestimation bias. So we conclude that the 2022 estimate of state wolf population is vastly overestimating the number of wolves in the state.
2: So, are you yes. saying um, from what? From your review and research thus far, the estimate of what is it, 972 wolves? Yeah. Could be much higher than the current population. Is that right? That's correct. Where have you taken this concern thus far?
1: It will get to them via the public comment. Also, it has been available on our on, on my lab website. That's for free download. Uh, ever since we first posted it there. Something like February 10th, we put it up there. Now, I haven't reached out to them for comment, The scientists don't need to do that. What I've reached out for is scientific opinions, and that's why we're also going through the peer review process with a journal currently.
2: You do have a couple more concerns, major concerns about the plan?
1: Yeah. Let's keep it to one, just to keep it simple. The Wolf Management Plan cites relatively quite a lot of science, but it misses a lot of better science. It's not just accidentally missing a study here or there. The Management Plan is missing a whole series of papers that calls into question the policies that the DNR is pushing regarding lethal management of wolves. And and by lethal management, I mean either this uh, selective removal of wolves suspected of killing livestock or the public hunting, trapping, and hounding. And the science that is skeptical of the effectiveness of either of these methods of killing wolves in protecting livestock, protecting domestic animals, those scientific studies are almost completely absent. That calls into question the underlying bias of the DNR's policy setting. In in other words, the, the DNR's policy appears to be distorting their presentation of the scientific record, and that misleads the public, and that betrays a bias in how their policy is decided on. It's not the best available science because selective citation of scientific studies is a classic breach of scientific integrity.
2: In terms of a harvest hunt, that's mandated to happen whenever Wisconsin is formally, you know, in charge of managing the wolves when they're not federally protected. So the DNR can't stop a hunt.
1: No, but the DNR justifies the hunt by saying things like it's going to protect livestock and it's going to raise tolerance for wolves. Both of those longstanding claims are false as far as the scientific research shows, and yet the DNR's management plan doesn't acknowledge the science that shows those claims are false. So a transparent agency that is science-based would acknowledge that the wolf hunting, trapping, and hounding seasons are simply for recreational or trophy or fur, whatever those private benefits are. they wouldn't try to justify it with a public benefit because the science doesn't support that public benefit.
2: When you step away, take a step back, science is critical, but the way that we operate as humans, depending on you know where we come from in the issue or the the topic of wolves in Wisconsin. There's a lot of forces at play. There's, there's people who have yeah. dramatically different opinions, right?
1: Yeah. So, of course, our policies should be based on our values and just informed by the science. The science doesn't tell us what to do, whether to hunt or not, how many wolves there should be on the landscape. Uh, our values tell us those things. But the intense concentration on wolf hunting and the wolf population size that reflects a minority opinion in the state, not a majority opinion. For example, fewer than 20% of state residents are big game hunters. So the interest in hunting wolves is a small minority, right? Um, And that tells us that the values articulated by the Natural Resource Board and the DNR to a lesser extent don't match the values of the state, but rather match the values of a narrow uh, minority interest group so, so I embrace what the DNR says about the ecosystem benefits of wolves and the many benefits people perceive of living wolves. I embrace their education and outreach efforts in this regard, but they're also under incredible political pressure to do things to please that narrow minority.
2: So your hope, Adrian, is that pressing on the peer review you hope will make a difference in the future of wolves in Wisconsin.
1: Yeah, but I'm equally concerned that the Wisconsin public is being ill-served by um, a natural resource agency that's under uh, undue political influence, that isn't free to speak and write as the science would inform them. They should be writing and speaking. So that's my concern. It's not just about wolves, it is about wolves, but it's also about uh, the Wisconsin public.
0: Adrian Trevis is a UW-Madison Nelson Institute professor of environmental studies. He spoke with WUWM environmental reporter Susan Benz, along with Adrian Weidevin, who worked at the state's wolf recovery program for over 20 years. The DNR is accepting public comments on the wolf management plan until tomorrow. We have much more information on the proposal at wuwm.com. Coming up, we'll look at three books by black authors that a UW professor says everyone should have on their shelves. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers. Black History Month may be coming to an end this week, but there are 11 other months to keep learning. Derek Handley from UW-Milwaukee thinks the best way is through reading books by Black authors. Handley is an assistant professor of English at UW-Milwaukee. He joins Lake Effect's Mallory Chang to share three books that he thinks everyone should have on their shelves. The
8: books that you picked, they range in genres from nonfiction, folklore, and historical fiction. What is the nonfiction pick?
3: So I chose uh, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community. Um, It's the last book um, written in the last year of life of Martin Luther King Jr. We're all familiar with his speeches. Unfortunately, he gets frozen in time especially with the I Have a Dream speech in 1963. But what some people may not know is is Dr. King was a wonderful and beautiful writer, a premier public intellectual. And we get to sense in this book where his ideas and where his thoughts were about the civil rights movement and reflection, looking back and his thoughts about the growing impact of the, of the Black Power movement. So I encourage people to read this book. Again, we often reduce him to, to a phrase, I have a dream, or just one quote, but to get the full depth, the overall picture of Martin Luther King. I highly recommend this book.
8: And just to tease out the book a little, with his last book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, what kinds of topics does he address in that period of time?
3: Well, he talks about the role of government, what he thought, um, his thinking about the government at his time. He's thinking about the growing militarism of the country and our role in the in the Vietnam War. But he also addresses poverty. And um, so we see a a economic philosophy is being revealed in, in this book. And it's not just, um, black poverty, but white poverty as, as well. So it's, it's a very interesting look and, uh, insight, uh, to him, but again, with a book, you know, you're, you're reading, you're getting a direct access to his words and his thoughts. And, uh, I highly encourage folks to read this book.
8: He definitely was, as we all are as humans, a very complicated person with a lot of thoughts. And you also have a pick that is a part of the African and African-American folklore genre by also a very well-known Black author in our country's literature history. And who are they and what's their book about?
3: It's, it touches on a theme, a major theme in African-American folklore, and it's Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Again, we are very familiar with Toni Morrison. Perhaps her most famous book is Beloved. But for some people, reading Toni Morrison can be difficult. But Song of Solomon was, for me personally, really her first book that converted me to being a Toni Morrison fan. I mean, the plot is a little bit more linear than some of her other books. And it's drawing from this theme of the Flying African, and I don't want to say too much about without giving it away, but flying is this thing in a relationship that African Americans uh, may have psychologically about escaping some of the the issues or the conditions or the perils of this of this country during this time. So, and again, Morrison is just a beautiful writer, and with. Every sentence that she crafts um, has a distinct purpose. And so this is, you know, Toni Morrison as being one of my favorite writers. I think if you want to begin reading Toni Morrison, I think this is a first good book. This was her third book, and it was published in the late uh, 1970s, but I think it's a good first book to begin with.
8: I definitely do remember reading Beloved in high school, and that was my introduction to Toni Morrison.
3: And how how did you do with that book? When you first started reading it?
8: Honestly, as a 15, 16-year-old, it was hard. I'm not even going to lie. It was hard. But then once I got through it and managed to figure out her prose and figure out, okay, the tempo and the rhythm of her writing, I'm like, okay, I get it. It takes a minute. It takes a second.
3: Right. It takes a minute. I tell my students, I said, look, when you begin reading Toni Morrison, you can't have any distractions. You got to be in a quiet room wide space maybe maybe meditate a little bit to get into that mindset because she's going to make you work as a reader And once you get into her world, once you start beginning to understand this universe, a universe that's centered on African-Americans and African-American experience, then you begin to understand. And then you begin to see the universality of the things in which she is writing about. Toni Morrison has once said, there's all these stories that are not being told. And that was a motivation for her to become a writer, to tell the stories that were not being told.
8: You can definitely tell that she was an educator while also being a writer. Absolutely. And finally, Derek, you have a historical fiction recommendation on this list of books. What is this one about? Who is this by?
3: Again, the same thing. We're familiar with this author. Um, it's, the book is called The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. You know, this is his first fiction book, and it's a historical fiction, taking a look at slavery and the Underground Railroad and the escape from slavery, also dealing with some magical realism, if you will. And I thought for a first novel, I thought it was very well done. And Coates is is just a good writer. He hearkens from the tradition of of, of James Baldwin, um, and I think that's what made his columns Very well read and when he was a columnist for The Atlantic. um, Of course, his big essay, The Case for Reparations, Mass Incarceration. But I think one of the reasons why those articles and that information resonated with people was just the craft of his writing. He is uh, simply a a really good writer. You know, you can see the research that he's put in to tell this story, a story that we might be familiar with, but telling it in a, a very different way.
8: Could you give the little tease about the overall theme and plot of this book?
3: Sure. So The Water Dancer focuses on a protagonist and his life in slavery, simply put, and what was slavery like at this time, as well as those who are trying to escape from slavery. And then what happens with people Or one perspective of what happens with people when they become free, right? What is, what are their responsibility to helping others who they left behind and how can they put their, their gifts to work to help others? So, and there is another character that I don't want to give away too much that folks may recognize historically as who is being part of the Underground Railroad, and a, and a major figure. In general, as history, we know the stories, we know the history, we know the facts, but with with fiction, we can go a little bit deeper. We can go into the, into the minds of the people who are um, living this and experiencing it and seeing it from their perspective, that these people, that they were people. They were not just slaves, that they were people who were enslaved. And how do you handle that? How do you handle that condition on a day-to-day basis? And how do you try to get away from that? I mean, slavery was not a passive institution. For those who were enslaved, it is a constant state of war. And so so any books that both nonfiction and fiction can help us to think about those things and to help us understand those things, I think it's very important. There are so many books. Um, if the if the listeners <laughs> could could see my office, they could they would see the shelves, all the books on, the, on on my bookshelf.
8: You're an English professor through and through. There's a lot of books. You have like four or five bookcases full of books. <laughs> And I'm sure it was really hard and difficult to put together this lesson. I really appreciate uh, you coming on to Lake Effect today, Derek, to talk about your three picks. Thank you so much for being here today.
3: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.
0: Derek Handley is an assistant professor of English at UW-Milwaukee, and he spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll tell you about a few places in Wisconsin to visit to explore our state's black history. Plus, we'll learn about a program called DEVELOP that's working to increase the number of local underrepresented commercial and housing developers. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.